Father in heaven, thank you for the gift of laughter. Thank you for the gift of worship. Thank you, Father, for the gift of studying your word. Thank you for the gift of your word and the way it touches our lives. You would say of the Bible that it is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. Penetrates the dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. Judges the thoughts and the attitudes of our hearts. Boy, that's true. This morning, Lord, we're going to ask you to judge the thoughts and the attitudes of our hearts. In a real way. In a tangible way. In a practical way. In a way that we can practice more than likely in the days to come. So I pray that your word will speak loudly and boldly and that we will receive it well. Also asking, Father, that you'll make me a communicator of simple truth from the Bible. But I pray, Lord, that you'll help me listen along with everyone else. Asking it in Jesus' name and with a bold faith. Amen. Unless you have been living under a rock these past few years, or let's just say 20, these past 20 years, you are familiar with the term fake news. I'll go ahead and put it up here on the screen for you. Fake news. Everybody's heard it. Everybody's heard it. We had a president that kept it in front of us all the time. We've had other people that have kept this term in front of us all the time, and personally, I'm thankful that they have. But maybe you're not familiar with the actual definition of fake news. Take a look at this. Fake news is false or misleading information presented as news. That's the simple definition. But what you really may not be familiar with is the fact that this term and even the definition associated with it isn't new. It's not something that has just shown up in the last two decades. In fact, according to historical record, it first showed up in 1890. Can you believe that? Fake news, the term itself, not just the practice of it, but the term itself has been around since 1890. All the way back in that century, in the newspapers that were being printed, they were printing sensational stories that embellished a lot of different details. And that's where fake news came from. Most people are annoyed by it, irritated by it, and at some level just put off by it. That is until it touches us personally. When fake news touches us personally, meaning it is fake news about us, then it takes on a, a whole different look. We take on a whole different approach in regard to fake news when it touches us personally. Happens in gossip. It happens in misquoting. It happens in just straight up bold lies. When that happens, oh boy, we can get irritated. Seriously irritated. Can you imagine if he were still alive today, how much this quote would bother Abraham Lincoln? The problem with quotes found on the internet is that they're often not true. Abraham Lincoln. Now, I want you to look real close at that. Is there anything that just grabs your attention telling you that that might just possibly be fake news? I hope so. If it isn't glaring, talk with someone afterwards. You need, you need 
prayer and, and maybe a little bit more. <laughs> Abraham Lincoln be highly bothered by something like that, but there's a lot of different quotes that are attributed to him that he never said, that he never said. I've had the same thing happen to me. You may very well have had the same thing happen to you. Fake news is put out there as truth, and, and those that put it out expect everyone to believe it, and if they tell it two or three or four times, they really expect everyone to believe it. And not only can it be irritating, it can cause some big problems. It can cause rifts in families, it can destroy relationships, and in some cases, it can cause problems in the realm of salvation. The Apostle Paul wrestled with that last one. There was some fake news circulating around about him that could have caused some major problems in people's walk with Christ. Paul was irritated enough by it that he wrote a letter to correct the fake news. That letter is 2 Thessalonians. Now, we've been studying these two books, 1 and 2 Thessalonians, for the past several weeks. We just wrapped up 1 Thessalonians last week. We're moving in to 2 Thessalonians this week. As we studied 1 Thessalonians, we saw all kinds of wonderful teaching that Paul would have about a myriad of different subjects, but right in the center of it was the rapture of the church, Jesus coming back for his children. It's exciting to read that book, to learn things that you don't find anywhere else in Scripture. As we move into 2 Thessalonians, we're going to hear about the second coming of Christ, the day of the Lord, and there's a lot of other good stuff that's in there. But you have to understand the purpose of that book was to correct some fake news. Because between the writing of 1 Thessalonians and the writing of 2 Thessalonians, there was another letter that was sent to this church that Paul loved. It just wasn't sent by him. Even though they believed it to be, even though whoever sent it signed Paul's name to it and said it was from Paul, it wasn't. And it caused a lot of problems. And Paul had to clean that mess up. Here's how we know that. In the second chapter of this book, we read these words. Verse 1. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to Him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word, or listen to this, or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Somebody wrote a letter to this church purporting to be the Apostle Paul, and they caused problems. Thankfully, Paul got word about it from Timothy when he brought his report back to him in Corinth, and he quickly sat down and penned his second letter. It got to him, and it helped him. It helped him a lot. And it can help us as well. There's great teaching in it. So we're just going to get into it and see what Paul had to say. But I wanted you to have that background so that you could understand the purpose of the writing. He is fixing some fake news. And I like the way he goes about it. think you might as well. This first chapter, well, it kind of makes us feel good. Let's take a look at it. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 1. Look at how he starts. Paul, Silvanus, that's Silas, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, and God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul starts a lot of his letters that way. 
He really does. It's his own personal greeting. It's his way of saying, I know you. I have great affection for you. You matter to me. Here's the other people that are with me. They're sending their greetings too. I like the way he starts it. I like the way he starts all of those books. But because of what he's facing in this particular case, the way he signs the book is of the utmost importance. Jump over to chapter 3 with me, verse 17. We read, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. This is the sign of genuineness in every letter of mine. It is the way I write. Now, a lot of people, a lot of scholars believe that the Apostle Paul had problems with his eyes. He couldn't see very good. So when he would write his letters, he would actually have to dictate them to, uh, in the Greek language, it's an amanuensis, which is really a secretary, a scribe, somebody that would write down word for word what the Apostle Paul said. And then at the end of the letter, Paul would, in his own hand, sign the letters. In essence, he was saying, I am the Apostle Paul, and I approve this message. It was his signature on the letter. That's what he was saying. And so now, in this particular case, because of the mess that he's trying to fix, Paul's saying, pay attention to my signature. This is the way I write all of my letters. This is my signature. This is my name. You look at this before you look at anything else. That's what Paul was telling them at the end of this letter, just after greeting them so affectionately at the beginning. He really wanted them to know, this is from me. Don't trust anything that doesn't have my seal on it. Don't trust anything that doesn't have my name attached to it. And even if somebody else had written that letter, they may have forged his signature, but they probably didn't do a very good job of it. So Paul was telling them, look at the signatures, pay close attention to them, and that'll keep you from falling into a hole, a dark one at times. So once we get past this wonderful greeting and even attach the signature to it, Paul moves on in just a spectacular way. Because remember, they had been led astray from the teaching that he had left them with and the teaching that he sent Timothy back to build on. So one letter came and these new converts started to fall into the trap of believing it. So Paul could have said, what in the world are you thinking? What in the world are you doing? That doesn't match up to what I was saying to you. That doesn't match up to the things that you've already been taught. Why would you believe this? But he doesn't. He chooses a different path. Look at what happens next. Verse 3. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly, and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. He chooses encouragement. Paul chooses encouragement. You want to know why? Because he is a spiritual father to this church. Fathers know the power of encouragement. Mothers know the power of encouragement. Sometimes we forget it because it can be hard work. When we see children doing things that they shouldn't do or we see them headed down a path that they shouldn't go down, we just want to jump on them and believe that always the strong arm will correct the action that we want to correct. Well, sometimes that's the wrong decision. Sometimes encouragement is the better way to go. 
Paul chose encouragement in this situation. Even though he had been a victim of fake news, even though his message was being distorted, even though the children that he loved and cared for so much were buying a bunch of malarkey, Paul chose encouragement. Your faith is growing. Your belief in God is growing. And your love for other people is growing. I'm so proud of you, he says. Oh, there were all kinds of other ways he could have reacted He chose encouragement. Parents, listen to what I'm about to share with you. But more than anything, pay close attention to what Paul just did. Because he could have done so many other things, and he chose encouragement. Maybe we should too. The National Center for Parenting has done a lot of study on the power of encouragement. They just recently printed an article about it. Listen to this. Sometimes when parents attempt to help their children improve their behavior, performance, work habits, or interpersonal skills, they use approaches that achieve just the opposite of what they had intended, or at best, seem to have no effect at all. So how can you help your children to do the right thing and to be all that they can be without damaging their self-esteem or your connection with them? How can you help them to recognize areas where they may need improvement without engendering resentment, discouragement, or defensiveness? This is where the gift of encouragement comes in. Encouragement is a subtle way that parents can powerfully influence their children's behaviors, attitudes, and habits. Specific, sincere praise is part of conscious parenting. While it can be hard work and actually requires practice, the payoff over time will be tremendous. Praise can influence how your children feel about themselves. Encouragement is a tool that enables parents to inspire their children to new levels of maturity, accomplishment, and self-pride. Imparts confidence, gives support, and enhances internal motivation. Encouragement can result in the behavioral and attitudinal changes parents would like to see. Fosters independence, high self-esteem, and a willingness to explore and experiment. It communicates that it is acceptable to make mistakes and to learn from those mistakes. This all sounds very good on paper, but how can you translate this into everyday life with your children? An example most parents can relate to is how you react when your baby takes his first wobbly steps. A 12-month-old who tumbles to the floor as he tries to walk does not need someone to say impatiently, can't you learn to walk yet? You need to hold yourself steady. Rather, he needs someone to be there to help him up if he falls, to applaud and to celebrate his attempts and to tell him, I know you can do it. Try again. I'll be here to help you. That's what real encouragement looks like. While it's easy to be the parent encouraging his young toddler to take those first steps, it is more difficult to remember to give those same supportive and bracing messages as children grow. But older children need them just as much as their younger counterparts because encouraging words have the same effect on them of instilling confidence, determination, pride in accomplishment, and the knowledge that their parents are there to support them if they fall. Well, that's what Paul was doing. He was encouraging them. They had fallen, so he was grabbing them and getting them back up and saying, I'm so proud of you. I am so proud of you. Your love for God and your love for others are both increasing exponentially. Made a mistake, you got sucked in, but let's just stand back up and get on the right path. Parents, practice it. See what happens. It is hard at times because it goes against our first inclinations. 
grandparents, do the same. Encourage those grandkids. Pick them up. Help them walk. By the way, I've learned over the course of the last 10 years that it doesn't end at graduation. We do the same thing with our adult children. They still need us to. So keep those encouraging words flowing. They matter. Now, in order to fix the problem, once Paul got through the encouraging part of it, he had to get into the weeds and deal with what had happened. I like how he does it. Join me in verse 4. This is still chapter 1. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering, since indeed God considers it just to repay with afflictions those who afflict you. Now let me stop there. And let's just take a look at some of this wrong teaching that had been poured out on them. Whoever wrote this other letter had told them that Jesus had already returned. Now remember in the first letter, Paul was talking about the rapture of the church, the catching up of the church. Well, some fool wrote a letter right on the heels of it telling the church in Thessalonica that Jesus has already come back and you got left. That's exactly what they said. You got left. Want evidence of it? Look at the suffering that you are going through. Look at the persecution you are facing. And a lot of them were being persecuted for their faith. They were being persecuted because they had become Christians. And now we have either a believer or a non-believer saying, that's happening to you because Jesus already came back. No matter what you believe, Jesus already came back. And they started to believe it. They started to believe that the persecution they were facing was the judgment of God. They started to believe that the persecution they were facing was the tribulation period that Paul had already told them about. And we've talked some about that through the midst of this study. They thought they were living in it. They needed to be reminded at some point of these great words from Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew chapter 5, we need to be reminded of them too. This is found in verse 11. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account, Jesus says. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, so that they persecuted, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now, Jesus is trying to remind us and all of those that were there to hear him that sometimes persecution happens. We will face trials. We will face tribulations. So make sure you're ready for it. Even as a Christian, don't ever buy it when somebody tries to sell you the bill of goods that says if you become a Christian, you'll never have problems again. You'll never face any persecution. You'll never have any trials. That's just a a lie. And it's a bold one. It's a bold one, so don't buy into it. Sometimes even believers are responsible for the wrong teaching that we have come rest on our hearts and on our minds. And sometimes even believers are responsible for the persecution that we come under. So Jesus says, blessed are you. Blessed are you when that happens. 
There is something going on in your life that is making you, if you remember our discussion about the word blessed from a few weeks ago, it's making you holy. It's a tool that God is using. Maybe, just maybe, that's why the Apostle Paul could stay within his own guardrail as he is building them up, encouraging them with these things. The guardrail, we talked about guardrails last week that keep us on the path of holiness in relationship with God. Well, one of them that Paul laid out is found in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 18. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. That's the guardrail that is protecting the Apostle Paul right now as he's watching his children suffer, but it's also the guardrail that he wants them to find protection within as they're going through all of this persecution. Live in the guardrail. Now, I do believe, because the Bible teaches it, that the church will be caught up, raptured before a seven-year tribulation period happens. That sits out in front of us. It's a future event. Both of those things are. The catching up of the church and the seven-year tribulation period that will follow. And there's a lot that goes with that. We talked about it in Sunday school, so we're not going to go back over it today. Let's just say those sit out in front of us. But I'm also one who believes that we will face smaller tribulations all through life. How we approach them matters. How we approach them matters. So I was studying for this. I opened up an email from Lamb and Lion Ministries, the ministry of Dr. David Reagan, just this last week. And in it was an interview with Johnny Erickson Tata. A lot of you know her story. When she was 18 years old, she was in a diving accident, broke her neck and ended up a quadriplegic as a result of it. But she has used it well for the Lord for a long time. So in this interview, Tim Moore, one of the people that works for Dr. Reagan, asked her some really pointed questions, and the answers she gave were spectacular. They really are. So I want to share the interview with you. It's, it's a little bit long, so do your best to hang with me. There are a lot of wonderful nuggets in this. So listen close. Tim starts out, Johnny, you were confronted with a calamity. At some point or another, all of us will experience at least a minor calamity in our life, and it's only human nature to dwell on our pain and loss. Without dredging up too many painful memories, please share how the accident affected you initially, both spiritually and psychologically. Johnny says, as you can imagine, I was utterly devastated. I'm 17 years old, athletic, and on the go, and ready to head to college. I'd asked the Lord Jesus right before I was to go to college orientation if He would please do something in my life that would bring me closer to Him. I knew that college would have its temptations, and so I wanted a closer walk with Jesus. Now, I had prayed that prayer right before high school graduation, and not but two weeks after my graduation from high school, I took a reckless dive thoughtlessly into shallow water. My head hit the bottom of a sandbar. The impact crunched my neck back, smashing my vertebrae and severing my spinal cord. I cannot begin to tell you the despair I felt, especially having just asked God to give me a closer walk with Jesus. I remember laying in the hospital bed thinking, Lord Jesus, if this is your idea of an answer to prayer to draw me closer to you, then I'm never going to trust you with another one of my prayers ever again. I was devastated, and so I plummeted into depression. 
But thank the Lord there was a Christian friends, or there were Christian friends who were praying. Real quickly, friends, when people ask me, Johnny, what should I say or what should I do for this person who just suffered a catastrophic injury or illness? My first response is pray. Because we wrestle not against the flesh and blood of spinal cord injury or other disabilities. No, we wrestle against powers and principalities that would love nothing more than to keep us steeped in depression. So I thank God for Christian friends who were praying for me back then. During my depression, there was one Christian friend who pulled up a chair by my hospital bedside, and he said, Johnny, I know you want to get out of your despair. Let me give you a Bible verse that can be your anchor. Start here. And then he quoted to me 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 18. In everything, give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. I remember saying to my friend, what? No way. I'm not going to do that. I don't feel thankful. I'd be a hypocrite if I did that. And he wisely said, Johnny, let's read the verse today. It doesn't say, in everything feel thankful. Rather, it says, in everything give thanks. There's a really big difference between trusting God and having trustful feelings. So you've got to push your emotions aside. Push away that box of Kleenex. Just take a deep breath, a step of faith, and start giving thanks. And so I did just that. I started mouthing thankfulness. I really wasn't thankful, but I wanted to be obedient. And so I started thanking God that my hospital bed was at least near the window. I thanked God that my family was supportive. I thanked God that people were coming to visit me. I thanked God that after so many months, I was finally able to sit up in a wheelchair. I thanked God for the breakfast that the nurses would first serve on my side of the hospital hallway because that meant it would be warm. For all kinds of things, I started giving thanks to God. Those small, drastic obediences of giving thanks really exercised my muscle of faith. Over time, I began to feel thankful. I believe it was God's reward for my faithfulness and relying on His Word. He gave me the emotion of thankfulness. So I would point to 1 Thessalonians 5.18 as the verse that really kick-started me on the path of righteousness and back to God. I also think it's important to be realistic. This July made it 55 years that I've been in a wheelchair. I also live daily with chronic pain. I don't sleep very well because I'm often awakened by the pain. There are mornings, actually on most mornings, I wake up and before my eyes are even opened, I'm crying out, oh God, I cannot do this one more day. I'm so tired of this pain. I don't have the endurance. I can't do quadriplegia anymore. But then I add, Jesus, I can do all things through you who strengthens me. Lord Jesus, I am empty. I am cavernous. I need your filling. I can't do one more hour without you. God, help me. And you know what? It's in this way that God loves to pour out his grace on people. He resists the proud. He resists those who hit the alarm, the alarm, jump out of bed, throw back the covers, take a shower, scarf down breakfast, and race out the front door on automatic cruise control without hardly ever giving God the tip of the hat of a quiet time. He resists those people but he gives grace to the humble. The humble are simply people who wake up in the morning realizing their desperate need for Jesus. It's how I've lived these past 55 years in a wheelchair, which makes my smile pretty authentic and not made of Colgate for sure. I like how she writes that because it helps us figure out how to face the small tribulations that we will all face. 
And that really is what the church in Thessalonica needed to hear. You're in the midst of a small tribulation. You're undergoing some persecutions. You have some difficulties in front of you. Paul isn't trying to erase that fact. He just wants them to know that Jesus did not leave you. You were not forgotten. He's right beside you. So you stay with him. You stay with him. Well, that's what Johnny was teaching us as well. And it's good medicine. It really is. But remember, I said, Paul had to get into the weeds in order to clean this mess up. Let's join him there. And you're about to hear something that is really quite dramatic. We're going to pick back up in verse 6. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you, and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us, When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. When he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. Paul just said, God's going to take care of those that would lead you astray. God's going to take care of anybody that would bring any wrong accusation against you or me, and we're going to trust it to Him. In essence, what Paul was doing was giving us great insight into a natural law. It is the law of sowing and reaping. It's up here on the screen for you. The law of sowing and reaping. We find it in nature all around us. If you want to enjoy the harvest of a garden, you have to plant a garden or have really good friends that did. That's the way it works. If you want a paycheck, you have to go to work. That's the law of sowing and reaping. If you want friends, you have to show yourself friendly. If you want a good marriage, you're going to have to invest in that marriage. You have to make sure that you are sowing good seeds in order to reap the harvest. If you want a growing relationship with God, you're going to have to invest in it. You're going to have to sow the seeds of Bible study and prayer and meditation. You're going to have to sow the seeds of a devotional life if you want to know God better. It is not enough for you to have a Bible sitting beside your bed or in the seat of your pickup next to you. You have to open it. That's the law of sowing and reaping. Nature shows it to us. If you want a suntan, you have to go out in the sun. You can apply anything you want. Simple things that we all live with that show us this natural law. But do you realize that it is also a spiritual law? the law of sowing and reaping. The one that Paul's talking about in 2 Thessalonians, it's a tough one. It kind of mirrors what he was saying in the book of Galatians. If you want to turn to Galatians chapter 6 with me, you'll see the law of sowing and reaping. Galatians 6, starting in verse 7. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing good, 
For in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Now, Paul, in the spiritual application of the law of sowing and reaping, addresses a couple of things. Let's look at the easy one, the one that makes us feel good. If we will continue sowing in our relationship with God, we will be in His presence when the time comes. That's one of the great joys of Christianity. You just continue walking with God. Continue investing, sowing in the relationship, and you have no worries. You have nothing to worry about, nothing at all. When the Lord calls you home, you will go home indeed. You will be with Him. Amen? Man, that's just, that's cool peace to live in. It really is. I call it the assurance of salvation. Continue walking with the Lord, and you have nothing to worry about. Absolutely nothing to be afraid of. God will be with you, as Scripture says. He will never leave you nor forsake you. And when the time comes, you will see Him face to face and you'll be with Him forever. Assurance of salvation. That's the easy one. Look at the the one right at the beginning. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. In that simple little statement, Paul's talking to those who would sow discord that would sow doubt, that would mock God to the children that He loves. They will reap what they sowed. And then He gives us this descriptive language in 2 Thessalonians to show us what the law of sowing and reaping looks like. When Jesus returns with His angels in righteous judgment, they will bear the full penalty of what they have done. But there's other places in Scripture, places that Maybe we'd like to rip out of our Bibles that tell us that that is God's decision, not ours. When people have harmed us, be it through fake news, their actions, whatever it might be, God gives us some pretty specific instructions about how to address it. Romans chapter 12, verse 19 says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Now that's very plain. And that is put out there so that we can trust God to take care of what God needs to take care of. Because oftentimes God's doing things that we're unaware of, even in the lives of other people. So when we have been wronged, the Bible is teaching us that there is a law of sowing and reaping, and if people have sowed nothing but pain in our lives, it is not our job. It is not our place to write that. It is God's. When the time comes, Jesus will come with His angels. And if they're standing on the wrong side of who Christ is, judgment comes with Him. Now, that's not something for us to celebrate. Rather, it is something for us to dread on their behalf, but we trust it to the Lord. Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 38, we read this. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the evil one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. That, that is the other way that the Lord wants us to handle it when we have been wronged. 
Somebody slaps you in the face, turn the other cheek. If they ask you to go one mile, go two. If they ask for your, your shirt, give them your coat too. You give them what they need. It's a different path. It's a hard path. But it's one that frees us from the burden of carrying around all of the perceived wrongs that have been done to us. It just lets us give it to God. I'm so glad it's that way. Even in the case of fake news, they said, I said, what? Well, we'll just let God clear that up. But let me tell you the truth. And we tell the truth. That's what Paul's teaching through all of this. It's subtle, but it is so good. At the end of it, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, he would say, To this end we always pray for you, that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power, so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Ultimately, that's what it's all about. Even when we've been wronged, it's all about lifting high the name of Jesus that he will be glorified. Everything else is his to take care of. Not ours. Not ours. So let him have it. But you might say to me, preacher, that sounds good. It really does. But in this law of sowing and reaping, I, I got to know that the scales somehow are going to tip back to me and not always tip towards the unrighteous because sometimes it feels that way. It feels like the unrighteous, those that cause harm, receive the greater blessing than those of us that just try to walk with God. A number of you are shaking your head like, yeah, that's how I feel. Then let me just allow the Bible to speak to the issue. This is the book of Proverbs, Proverbs chapter 11. Verse 18, the very last half of it. The one who sows righteousness gets a sure reward. Listen again to Solomon. The one who sows righteousness gets a sure reward. Later on in the exact same book, chapter 22, verse 8, the first half of that verse says, Whoever sows injustice will reap calamity. That's the law of sowing and reaping. Leave it to God. Leave it to God. And when the time is right, Jesus will bring with him the host of heaven, his angels, and he will come ready to give the reward to his children and those that have been faithful. And justice will fall where it needs to. You let God take care of it. You let God take care of it. Paul did. And boy, great harm was done to him. But he was going to let God take care of it. It's good medicine for all of us. Why don't you stand and pray with me? Father in heaven, this short little book is powerful. It's got some great teaching in it. Thank you for all of it. Appreciate the practical parts that show us how to encourage and build up other people and why we need to. Appreciate the fact, Lord, that you show us that, that all of us have to face difficult things in life. How we face them is what matters. And Lord, I particularly appreciate the great teaching that tells us vengeance is yours and you'll take care of it. Our job is simply to lift you high. So that's what we want to do. I'm praying, Lord, for 
those that want to establish a relationship with you that, that will change their lives, would you let today be the day of salvation? I know there are others that are seeking a relationship with the church. Would you let that happen today as well? I know, Father, that there are others that have just carried some big burdens, some tribulations with them. I pray that they'll remember to give thanks in everything as they look for your hand in your presence. These next few moments are holy, Lord. I pray you'll do holy things with them in all of our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.